0: Welcome to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, which is made possible by you, our patrons on Patreon. We're always looking for ways to thank you for your generosity in making all our shows on StarQuest possible, and this is one of those ways. We recently reached out and asked if you had questions you'd like to ask, and we got many great responses, and that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So Jimmy, how will we be handling the questions today?
1: Well, we'll answer as many questions as we can. We got a lot of great questions. And so uh, any that we don't answer in this episode, we'll save for our next patrons questions episode. So we will be getting to your question. Excellent.
0: So let's start with a question from Father Jeff Horton, who asked, uh, what are your thoughts on the
1: X-37B? What's it doing up there? So for people who may not be familiar with it, the X-37B is a mini robotic space plane made by Boeing, and it is only 29 feet long, so it's not very big. It only weighs five and a half tons, and it has stayed in space on missions for up to 780 days, so more than two years at a time. And it's doing classified military work, exactly what that is. Obviously, we don't know all the details because they're classified, Some of the things that it has been accused of doing is acting as a spy satellite. It's also been accused of acting as a weapons platform, although that has been denied, as one does. (laughs) It also has been accused of spying on the Chinese space station, and that's also been denied as one does. Uh, We do know that it has been used for trying to do testing on the electromagnetic drive that uh, has been proposed and that doesn't easily fit with the known laws of physics, but they got some preliminary test results and decided to, that seemed to work, and so they tried it out apparently on the X37B. It's also been used for testing an ion drive that operates by releasing ions for reaction mass. And it, of course, has been releasing spy satellites.
0: Okay, Uh, very busy. (laughs) Yeah. John Coral asks, if someone is cryogenically frozen at the end of their life, would they go on to their final judgment or would they be in some kind of state of limbo until brought back to life? If they come back to life, would it be with the same soul or a different one?
1: It's going to depend on the nature of the cryogenic freezing and the revival. If it's a form of non-destructive cryogenic freezing that literally just suspends body processes without extinguishing life, then you would not die, do not pass go, do not collect $200, do not go to final judgment. And when you're revived, it'll clearly be the same soul. On the other hand, the way cryogenic freezing works today, number one, you have to wait till the person's clinically dead to freeze them, and that isn't proof that they're literally fully dead because clinical death there, you know, you, you can be brought back from that, and you've got the same soul and and clinical death. I don't think is the same as full death, but cryogenic freezing is destructive the way it currently works. So it like destroys the cell structures in your brain and stuff. And I think you, even if you weren't fully dead when you clinically died, you will be fully dead by the time you are cryogenically frozen. And so consequently, at that point, I'd say, yep, you do go on to your final judgment. And if they revive, quote unquote, revive, quote unquote, you at some point centuries from now, what they're really doing is reconstituting a body that may have some or all of your memories but it's going to count because of all that cell death it's likely to count as a new body and thus it would have a new soul in all likelihood that would be my guess interesting i had a philosophy professor who said that if you die
0: and you and you but you come back then you didn't die, <laughs> like just by definition. If you are revived, no matter how long after or what way, you didn't die, therefore, yeah, so.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far because, like Lazarus, definitely died and didn't come back for you know four days, mm. and and but that I case I think is a case of soul return. Hypothetically, the same thing could happen after hundreds of years, but that was a miracle. And we've got an argument and clearly the same body. And mm. we've got an argument given all of the cell destruction and and reconstitution of cells. It, it you got an argument. It's a new body. And it's so much later, I would assume it's a different soul. OK,
0: uh, Zipporah Tyler asks, what's the deal with Aaron in the Egyptian wise men turning rods into snakes in Exodus? I always wondered how that's possible.
1: So God can, you know, do anything miraculously. Now, there is a question because Exodus is written well before the United monarchy when they really started keeping court records. It does preserve accurate memories of earlier times, but they may be stylized in various ways because the farther you go back before Hebrews had written records, the more stylization is introduced into the way history is related. But God can certainly take Aaron's staff like he did Moses's and turn it into a snake if he chooses. The real question would be, what about the Egyptian magicians? who do the same thing even though Aaron's staff eats theirs up thus proving the superiority of God's action in this case how would they do it well some people in the past might be inclined to say oh well they had supernatural abilities too you know maybe caused by demons or something but actually there's another explanation that i think is likely i think it was a magic trick in the modern sense if it was an illusion because this is a known trick that people in Egypt not only did practice, but do practice, because there are snake charmers in Egypt who can do this today. And I got a clip here from a Great Courses course on ancient Egypt by the Egyptologist Bob Breyer, who is an outstanding teacher. And he wondered about this because he's got some lectures in his history of ancient Egypt about Egypt in the Bible, you know, the Joseph story, the Exodus, things like that. And he talks about this. And so here's a clip from Bob Breyer talking about this very same trick, or at least a very similar one being performed
2: today. I think one other thing that I I sort of liked, um, the serpent trick, the old serpent trick. I wondered about that. I've, I've wondered about that for years. And about five years ago, I was in Egypt. And I decided to see if I could find a snake charmer. There's still snake charmers in Egypt. It's a wonderful thing. Um, I wanted to see if I could find a snake charmer who could do it. You know, I figured, if Pharaoh's men aren't impressed, it's got to be a trick that people know. Found a snake charmer in the south of Egypt who worked with cobras. Now, I don't know if these were poisonous or not, if they had been defanged or what. But they were cobras. There's no question about that. And I said, hey, can you do this? Can you make your cobra looked like a s- staff and ke- and he did it um it was not exactly as in the bible but i was impressed um he took this cobra and he holds it up in his hand and his cobra kind of wriggling around you know kind of wriggling a lot and all of a sudden the cobra goes rigid and it looks like the top of the, the cobra's head is the top of a walking stick and you've got this guy holding what looks like a staff with the head carved like a cobra. And then he throws it on the ground, and it wriggles away. That's pretty good. I mean, sure, it's pressure on nerves. He's probably squeezing the poor thing to death, who knows what. But this cobra looked like a staff.
1: So there you have it. Snake charmers in Egypt do basically the same trick. And so Pharaoh's magicians could have done this. And then by the fact that Aaron's staff turned into a snake and ate theirs up, it shows even if they were able to do something similar, God was still the superior agency in this case.
0: Okay. Christian Castillo writes, Hi, Jimmy and Dom. There's been talk about a substance called adrenochrome, which is said to keep people young, amongst other effects there's some very disturbing things being said about how it's made involving drinking the blood of a person with very high levels of adrenaline in their body. Have you heard of this? People from the QAnon groups talk about it.
1: Yeah, got to be a little careful with stuff you hear from the QAnon folks. I mean, I'm not saying that they should simply be dismissed because everybody can make true claims. They need to be evaluated on a case by case basis. But there are a number of demonstrably false QAnon theories. And this seems to be one of them. Adrenochrome is a real substance and it's actually made in our bodies from the oxidation of epinephrine or adrenaline. It appears in sufficient quantity to serve as a neurotoxin and reportedly can cause people to become psychotic. It is also made commercially But you don't just drink the blood of a person with high levels of adrenaline. What they do is they use like silver oxide as an oxidizer. It is not a youth drug. And so, you know, I can't say that nobody's trying to use it off label for that, but they're not really going to grow younger. If anything, they may cause themselves to become psychotic. There is, though, a young blood treatment that some people have wondered about. Because it turns out, it, this has been verified in, in mice, for example, if you take the blood of young mice and transfuse it into older mice, the young, the older mice start acting young again. Hmm. And so this has led to speculation uh, and and I think even attempts to do the same thing with humans. And so there has been a concern about would there be this kind of exploitative relationship set up between the old and the young for their blood kind of vampire like mm-hmm. now simply getting a transfusion that's not sinister and and having a young person donate blood to be given to an older person for health benefits that's not sinister in and of itself but you could have some kind of exploitative relationship develop out of that however it looks like it may not be necessary be in order to achieve in order to achieve the effects because it turns out when old people donate blood and their blood dilutes, it appears to get rid of some kind of crud that's in their blood and they get rejuvenating effects anyway without a young person even being involved. So simply filtering or diluting blood of older people seems to produce the same benefits. And that may be the explanation for why the younger blood in the mice helped the older mice. It's not because the blood itself was younger it, or it, it or had something that they needed. It was that it didn't have some of the crud that the older mice had in their blood. Mm. But you could achieve the same thing by diluting or. Yeah.
0: So if you're older and you want to feel young, don't eat blood. <laughs> yeah, or have it
1: filtered or something like that. This is all still an area of active research. OK.
0: Laura Frapolo says, hello, Jimmy. It occurred to me lately that we have no writings from Jesus as an educated man and a teacher. Why is it that we have no evidence of letters he wrote a la Paul or Peter? Or
1: is there something I'm not aware of? Well, one of the things that has been commented on is that Jewish rabbis and, you know, Jesus gets called rabbi in the Gospels. One of the things that characterized Jewish rabbis is most of them didn't write. So like even the famous ones like Hillel and Shammai, who founded schools of major, you know, major rabbinic schools of thought, they didn't write. And so a lot of their teachings were passed down as oral tradition. And this was characteristic of a lot of Jewish sages. And really the writing process didn't start until the second century AD, after the temple had been destroyed, after they could no longer worship there. There was a concern that the legal traditions that they had would be forgotten, you know, if nobody's using them, or if we're out of the land or things like that, it, it put, kind of puts a crimp in your style. And so there was this concern that these traditions would be lost. And so they started being written down, By a man named Judah Hanasi or Judah the Prince. And that's the basis of what's called the Mishnah, which is a late second century collection of these Jewish legal traditions. And then that became the basis of what's called the Talmud. So if you've heard of the Talmud, what it is is it's a collection of commentaries on the Mishnah to get even more legal tradition and legal interpretation down on paper. But this was like an unusual thing in the history of Judaism. And prior to this point, most sages did not write treatises. So that's apparently part of why Jesus, as a Jewish sage, did not do so. He taught his disciples orally. Having said that, there is an early church legend that Jesus did write. According to the legend, during his ministry, King Abgar V of the city-state of Edessa wrote Jesus a letter and said, hey, I understand, I, by the way, I need some healing. And also, I understand you've got some local problems, but you can come and live here and you'll be safe. And Jesus wrote back and said, thanks, but no thanks. And I'll send someone eventually to heal you, which then happened after the, after the crucifixion. This legend is Based on documents that apparently were found, and I believe the church historian Eusebius may have actually seen them himself. At least that's what my memory says. But based on documents that were allegedly in the archives of Edessa, and this legend was taken seriously by people in the Middle Ages. It is not taken seriously by scholars today and for various reasons. And it looks like if these letters were in the archives of Edessa, they were salted there at a later time after Edessa became Christian. And it's like, wouldn't this be neat? And Mm. let's, you know, make these letters and put them in the archives, kind of like the Priory. Of Zion documents in Holy Blood, Holy Grail were salted in the French National right. Library. In any of it, we'll have a link to more information about the Abgar Jesus correspondence in the further resources. Uh,
0: Thomas Jose Maria Kitching asks Hi guys, do you think that Andrew Cross spontaneously created life? Apparently, he found small Akari mites seemingly growing out of nothing where he had dripped a solution of potassium silicate and hydrochloric acid, electrified with a current from one of his batteries over a porous stone. This one has always fascinated me.
1: Yeah, and people do sometimes cite this as a really weird instance, and it was used for a time by some people to as an argument for spontaneous generation of life. Andrew Cross or Crossa was a British scientist, or as they said back then, a natural philosopher, meaning a philosopher of nature, in the first half of the 1800s. So he was an early 19th century scientist, and other people and him concluded that the actual explanation, so this is his own view, that there was just a a conventional explanation for this. The samples were contaminated with eggs of the mites. And so that's why the mites seem to appear. And that's the standard understanding. And and I believe that's been subsequently confirmed in various ways. Okay. Scott Shields uh, asks, what do you think causes deja vu? I knew you were going to ask that question. (laughs) So there are different theories about deja vu. One of them is, and this is often the deja vu experience where it seems like something has happened to you before, even though it doesn't seem to have. One explanation is past life theory. So you didn't experience it in this life, but you did in some previous life. I don't buy that for reasons we discussed in episodes 93 and 94 on reincarnation and Bridie Murphy. Another thing that we discussed in those episodes that could be an explanation is what's sometimes called ancestral memory. It turns out that you can, at least in the case of certain types of experiences, like traumatic ones, you can affect the epigenetic material of a creature in such a way that it turns on certain genes that will then be turned on in their offspring. So this has been done with laboratory mice, where you uh, basically torture the mice with electric shocks. And as you torture them with the electric shock, you expose them to cherry blossom smell. Well, the mice do what you would expect. They tense up when they're about when they get an electric shock. And then you let them get busy and they have baby mice. And when the baby mice grow up, you don't shock them, but you expose them to cherry blossom scent and they tense up like they're bracing for an electric shock. Hmm. So this is thought to happen epigenetically, that certain genes in the parents under stress get turned on, and then that gets passed on to the offspring so that the offspring are equipped evolutionarily to deal with an environment that contains electric shocks associated with cherry blossom smell. So this is uh, sometimes called ancestral memory. And hypothetically, it could explain human deja vu, at least of certain types. I don't have evidence for that, but I mention it just for the sake of completeness. Another possibility, if it turns out psychic abilities like precognition are real, it could be that deja vu is explained by precognition that you sensed what was about to happen right before it did happen. Another possibility is and this is a, the last two I'll mention are uh, are conventional ones. One is called split perception theory. Our brain has different modules running in it at all times that help us process information and and they can get out of sync. One hypothesis is that it's a desynchronization of the processes running in your brain that are processing the stream of sensory information you have about your experience. And because one of the brain processes is a little faster, is running a little faster than the other at the moment, the information comes to your conscious attention at slightly offset moments. So it's like the information about the experience arrives early through one set of brain processes and just a little bit later through the second set of brain processes. And that creates an illusion that you've experienced this before. And you did just a split second before through a uh, through a different set of brain processes. So that split perception theory is one theory to account for it. There are also memory-based theories. And I think these are, to my money, these are the most likely, that it's a form of crypto amnesia. Either you experienced it in real life and then forgot it, but this is triggering an old memory, or maybe you experienced it in a dream and forgot it, and this is triggering that memory. Okay. Jonathan Hill writes,
0: Hey, Jimmy and Dum, a few years back, there was a news story about a gentleman from Muskegon, Michigan, Kevin Dykstra, who had a theory that at the end of the Civil War, a large amount of Confederate gold was being moved by Jefferson Davis to Texas. On the way, members of the 7th Michigan Cavalry captured him. The theory goes that officers in the cavalry secretly buried part of the gold and years later smuggled it to Michigan. Eventually, it was being transported across Lake Michigan on a rail car ferry from Frankfurt, Michigan, and its boxcar that it was in was pushed into the lake. It was even made into a campy History Channel show about the curse of the Civil War gold. I've heard slightly different versions of the story as well, and other theories, but they all surround this idea of a lost Confederate treasure. Does Jimmy have a theory on it, or is this already on the list for a future episode?
1: Well, it is on the list for a future episode. I am more familiar with other versions of the of the mystery than the Kevin Dykstra version. But from the reading I've done to this point, it looks like and I still need to do further research, so I'm not committed to this, but it looks like it's true that there was lost Confederate gold that was put on a train that initially went south and then ended up in various places. My understanding is some of it has been recovered and that there is uh, there are clues to where it is located, like carved on trees, mysterious things carved on trees as clues to where this gold ended up. And apparently some people have found some of it over the years. So mm. we will be talking about the legend of the lost Confederate gold on a future episode.
0: Excellent. Sounds like a great uh, movie. <laughs> it just feels like I've seen it, I've seen that movie. I think it's before. been done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Carrie Buring asks some friends of mine expressed skepticism that Adolf Hitler actually killed himself. They think he escaped to South America. Any ev- evidence to support
1: that claim? That was a movie, wasn't it? By the way, yeah, it's been multiple movies. <laughs> yeah. So, a lot of Nazi war criminals did escape to South America. Uh, we know that for a fact. The question is, did Hitler? Well, there are claims that he didn't die in the bunker in Berlin, that it may have been one of his doubles or something. And some, of the, some versions of the story say he went to South America. Other versions of the story say he went elsewhere, including places like Indonesia, And so there's not just one alternative account of what happened to Hitler. There are actually a number, and we will be looking at them in future episodes. Of course, they are contradicted by the standard account, which is that he did die and, you know, people saw this and so forth. But uh, I look forward to getting into the evidence and seeing which way it points. Okay,
0: Richard Vega says, "Uh, I can't remember if this has been suggested. One of Art Bell's favorite and most popular shows were on what was called EVP. His guest would play tapes that were made which had no one making any noise yet when played back there would be faint voices most were hard to make out and they'd lead you in terms of what they believed it said but a few were very clear and even included children's voices they even would ask questions sometimes and the voice on the tape answered
1: yeah so EVP is an abbreviation for electronic voice phenomena And it is, as Richard describes, and Art did used to cover this as well as related phenomena. I have not had a chance to look into it in detail, but I can certainly put it on the list for the future if it's not already there my suspicion is that this is a case of pareidolia. Pareidolia is the human brain's tendency to impose patterns on random input. And I used to experience pareidolia all the time back when I was a kid before cable, because before cable, TV stations would go off at night. And if you're a little kid, and you don't have cable, and you watch TV until the station goes off the air, you see static on your screen. And I remember very well seeing patterns in the static, you know, little spinning wheels and things like that, that I knew my my brain was manufacturing. And something similar happens with noise. When we're listening to random input noise, our brains can indeed find patterns in it. In fact, there is a known phenomenon where some people like hearing the sound of an engine running will hear music or voices singing in a kind of muffled way. And it's just their brain trying to make sense of and imposing a pattern on the random noise. So if you have a, a tape recorder and you let it play room hiss, And then you play it back and you manipulate it in some way, like making it really loud or something, you'll amplify the random stuff it captures as part of the white noise in a room, let's say, and then you'll be able to find patterns in it. And that would explain why a lot of these EVPs are hard to understand and also why they're kind of leading you to, oh, it sounded like it said this. Now, I can't say that's the universal explanation for these things. There are other potential explanations, too, including fraud. But I look forward to looking into it. Boo uh, says, hey, Jimmy, I've been
0: listening to a great course, a series of lectures on ancient Mesopotamia. It had mentioned that a particular king, Sargon the Great, was put in a basket as a baby by his mother, hoping someone would take care of him. This is also similar to the origins of Moses, and while I don't remember when this legend of Sargon was written, it did raise some questions in my mind. It's unlike the Genesis epics of the Flood and the creation of the world, because those are epics that use common beliefs of other surrounding cultures to illustrate a theological truth. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a word-for-word historical account. But I'm not sure what to make of this baby sent away in a basket thing. It's in the Book of Exodus, for one, which I thought should be taken as a historical account. Could it be a common thing people actually did at the time if their parents could not take care of their babies? Is it
1: actually a legendary element of Moses's origins? So everybody knows that Moses was not put in a basket to escape Egypt. He was put in a rocket to escape Krypton. (laughs) Oh, wait, that's a different guy. Yeah. Okay. so baby in a basket thing. Well, Incidentally, The Great Courses has a couple of histories of ancient Mesopotamia. I'm not sure. I've listened. I've got them both. I've listened to one of them. And it's actually we'll have a link to it, by the way. There's actually a very interesting set of courses. The professor oddly sounds a lot like Marina Sirtis, (laughs) who played Deanna Troy on Star Trek The Next Generation. Now, on the show, she doesn't use her native accent, which is British. She speaks in this kind of huskier way. But when you hear Marina Sirtis talk with her native accent, it's very British and higher pitched. And the professor sounds like that. So it's like having... Marina Certis read you lectures in Mesopotamian (laughs) history. It's a little odd, but she's the professor is really good and I really enjoyed her set. When she mentions this, she does talk about Sargon of Akkad, who lived at least a thousand years before Moses. So Sargon of Akkad lived in the twenty-fourth and twenty-third centuries BC. Moses, depending on the dating a theory that you accept was sometime between the 14th and the 12th centuries BC. So it's over a thousand years earlier. And uh, she notes that Sargon of Akkad had the baby in a basket on a river thing. So did Moses. So did some other people in the ancient world. And at least in the set that I've listened to thus far, she is open to the possibility. Maybe this was something that that people did in the ancient world for a variety of reasons. I mean, even today, the baby in a basket is a recurring literary trope. We don't put them on rivers, you know, we'll put them on doorsteps or something, Mm -hmm. maybe. But this is something that occurs repeatedly in ancient literature in this part of the world. And so maybe it was an established social custom at the time. If you had a baby you couldn't keep for one reason or another, you'd set it adrift in hopes that somebody would find it.
0: Okay, and then uh, Adam Spacht writes, Jimmy and Dom, from the faith and reason perspectives, what do you think of mass delusions and or hysteria as an excuse to explain away certain mysterious events? For example, all of the following have had mass delusion or hysteria as proposed explanation. The mysterious Taos, New Mexico hum, the dancing plague of 1518, the Seattle windshield pitting epidemic of 1954, the Tanganyika laughter epidemic and the june bug epidemic of 1962
1: so i'm not equally familiar with all of those but i do think that mass delusion/mass hysteria has a role in explaining some of these things i think the medieval dancing sickness sometimes called st vitus dance is an example of that i think that's that's the most logical explanation is this this was an idea that people got into and started doing it and some kind of felt carried away by it, but it really wasn't like a a biological disease that caused people to dance. It was like, if it were, we would have other examples of that in history and Mm. we'd be able to find it and study it. So I think a lot of these, same, same thing with the Taos, New Mexico hum. Now I'm open to the possibility that there's a physical explanation for that because there are natural phenomena that generate hard to hear sounds that may affect people and that some people may be able to hear. So I'm open on that one. But I also recognize it could be it could be just a a suggestion that people have heard and then they maybe interpret their tinnitus as the hum if they live in this area or they they think they hear it, but it's really their imagination or something like that. So I do think that that mass delusions and or hysteria may play a role in explaining various phenomena. But we just as with any other explanation, we shouldn't leap to that one as if it's the only and obvious one. Like in the case of the Taos hum, maybe there are underlying power lines or an underlying ge- underground geographical fault that has stress on it or something else that could be generating that.
0: Okay. Jay Mullinix writes, Hi, Jimmy. My question is about the Holy Fire, which appears from the tomb of Jesus every year at Orthodox Easter. I'd never heard of this prior to my conversion to Orthodoxy five years ago, and I'm surprised at how little known the phenomenon is among Christians, whether believed in or not. Two years ago, the cathedral where my family attends was able to procure some of the fire and it's been maintained there since. There's a Jordanian man in our parish who has been to the tomb to witness the holy fire. He's an engineer and not given to fantastical claims and he stated to me that he was not burned when touching the flames to his hands and face. I'm aware there were some Greek journalists claiming recently to have gained testimony from local clergy that the fire was just secretly lit with a lighter. But then there's the testimony of lots of people like my friend that the fire doesn't burn them, to say nothing of the many videos that seem to show this too. What's your take on this, Jimmy? We'd love to
1: see a whole episode on this. Well, I plan on doing a whole episode on the holy fire at some point. I have done preliminary investigations of it, and I have some preliminary thoughts, but I want to test them further before going into them. I think that both natural and supernatural explanations need to be considered. I certainly don't rule out the possibility of God performing miracles even though I'm Catholic. It, God God cares about everybody, so he can perform miracles outside the Catholic Church and we've even talked about that in some episodes and we'll talk about it in future episodes as well. So just because this isn't part of my tribe, I don't dismiss it. At the same time, I think natural explanations need to be considered, too. And I want to do further research, so I will be presenting my conclusions in a future episode.
0: Gregory Fontana writes, Hi, Dom and Jimmy. I loved the Golden State Killer episode. Along the same lines, will we ever find out who the Zodiac Killer was? My mom was a kid in Napa during that time and remembers riding the school bus and having it followed by police because of the Zodiac being recently active.
1: Yeah, that was fairly late in the Zodiac killer's career. He had largely stopped identifying. If He'd either stopped killing or stopped identifying himself as, a, as the killer of various people. But he did continue to mail letters, and he threatened children on school buses. So that did lead to a period of extra caution regarding school buses and protecting the kids on them. It also led in the movie Dirty Harry, which is based on the Zodiac killer although in the movie they call him Scorpio mm-hmm. instead of Zodiac. And by the way, he's played by Andrew Robinson, Garak, from oh. a very young Garak from Deep Space Nine. Right. But there is a school bus sequence in that where Andrew Robinson hijacks a school bus. It's a pretty intense movie. But in terms of will we ever find out who the Zodiac killer was? The answer is maybe. Now, there are people who think we've already found out. Robert Graysmith, who was a cartoonist for the San Francisco Chronicle that then wrote a very famous book just called Zodiac, investigated a number of candidates in that book, and he then wrote a sequel in recent years called Zodiac Exposed, where he revisits the case and names explicitly who he thinks Zodiac was. There are other candidates, though, and so I mean I've read Grace Miss I've read both of Grace Smith's books and I definitely plan on talking about it on the show in the future we will have a Zodiac episode I kind of I don't want to do too much true crime on here you know because it's it's not for all listeners but we will have a Zodiac episode in the future and I will be talking about the different candidates at this point I am not convinced that Gray Smith's theory is correct about who he finally settles on. I think there's enough evidence pointing away from this figure that I'm not convinced it's this guy. But we may eventually be able to get proof because they do apparently have some DNA evidence from Zodiac, or at least that maybe from Zodiac. And so we may be able to use similar DNA tracing techniques like those that were used to catch the Golden State Killer that could at least point us to the right family of Zodiac. And then if one of the suspects is in that family, even if he's dead, we may be able to identify him. Aileen Gale asks, what happened to the Ark of the
0: Covenant? Is it in safekeeping in Ethiopia? And why or how did it seem to have the power to kill at a mere
1: touch? Well, we don't know for sure what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. Obviously, we're going to be doing an episode on that and the different accounts of what happened to it. I do not personally think it was destroyed by the Babylonians. That's a theory you sometimes read, but I don't buy that because if they'd carried it off or destroyed it, it would be mentioned in the Old Testament historical books, and they don't record that. So I think it did survive the Babylonian destruction of the temple. And I think they didn't carry it off. I think it got hidden. The question is, where did it get hidden? And of course, does it still survive today? I mean, it would be very old today. It could have fallen apart in the interim, especially if it was exposed in a, you know, it was made of acacia wood. So if it was in a very moist environment, like, and there are some indications it was put in a cave. Well, if it was in a damp cave, you know, it could have disintegrated. But there are some accounts that say it was put in a cave in Israel or nearby. I don't think it's in Ethiopia. I think the, what the Ethiopians have is a replica of it. And the replica is old enough that memories have become confused with that of it being the actual Ark. But I don't find the idea that King Solomon gave it to the Queen of Sheba and she took it to Ethiopia. I don't find that credible at all mm. because we know the Ark was there after Solomon's time. And that's one account. There may be others of how it got to Ethiopia, but I certainly don't buy that account. I think it is much more likely that what they have in Ethiopia is a replica in terms of and there have been lots of replicas in history, and it's easy to see how you've got this venerated replica you've been venerating for hundreds of years. Maybe you think it's the real thing after a certain point in time. In terms of it having the power to kill at a mere touch, well, it didn't do that always because there were various times where the Ark was captured by non-Israelites, and they certainly did not obey the Levitical precepts for how you handle this. And so we can be, I think, morally certain that it was handled by various people who did not die. There is the case of it killing a man named Uzzah, and that would have then been a special exception where God either According to various views, God can cause physical evils without it being moral evil. God could have caused him to die to, te- to learn a lesson, or he could have at least allowed him to die from some other cause after touching the Ark as a way of teaching a lesson about the sanctity of the Ark.
0: Travis Rooney writes, an argument that I've heard in regards to the existence of hell for those separated from God is that it is better to exist than to not exist. Therefore, to exist in hell is a greater good than to not exist at all and so God created a place for those condemned. I'm not sure of either the validity or the source of the argument, but also, if valid, how does, how does this align with Matthew 26:24, where Jesus states that the Son of Man indeed goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he
1: had never been born. Thanks, y'all. So it is one of the one of the proposed arguments is indeed that it's better to exist than than even in hell than to not exist. And so people there have a net benefit. And that's one way of answering the question, why would God, you know, create people who he knows are going to go to hell because they will net benefit from it. That is one argument that you hear. It's not the only argument. There are other potential ways of looking at that as well. They're a little complex to go into here, but since we're getting towards the bottom of this episode but in terms of how it fits with Jesus's statement that it would be better for that man to have never been born at all i think there are at least a couple of things to be said the first one is that's literally true if judas had had been conceived but not been born he would not have betrayed jesus and so even if he had miscarried in the womb he would not have risked going to hell because he wouldn't have he wouldn't have killed, he wouldn't have betrayed Jesus. So it's just literally true. It would even if Judas did not repent, he wouldn't have committed the crime that would put him in danger of hell. So it would have been better for him. So that's one way of looking at it. There's also another way of looking at it, which is that it's not altogether certain that Judas is damned. This is something that Pope Benedict talked about. That even though there are passages you could look at, and you could interpret this very one as a signal that Judas is damned, it presupposes that Judas didn't repent. And Matthew's gospel says Judas did repent, that he, I mean, it uses the word, it says he repented. And he then goes on to kill himself. And while objectively, suicide is is gravely sinful, that doesn't mean that every person who commits suicide is lost. So one could argue that Judas did repent and that he then was so distraught that he killed himself without being fully responsible for his actions, and maybe he's in heaven. What Jesus is warning against is the moral character or at least this is one way of taking this passage: is that uh, that Jesus is warning against the moral character of the act of betraying him. If you do, if you betray him, and the implication is you don't repent, then you're in danger of hell. Also, even if you're not in danger of hell, it would have been better for you not to be born because you're going to have a really long purgatory. But some scholars have argued that Matthew is actually wanting us to envision Judas as at least potentially being saved. And maybe he wants us to envision Judas as being saved. And that's why Matthew goes into the fact that Judas repented. He returned the money even when they didn't want it. He threw it back into the temple. It's like, I'm not having this. I betrayed innocent blood. I don't want this. And then he was so distraught, he killed himself as a sign of the sincerity of his repentance at least that's one way that some scholars have read Matthew. So that's another, and I'm not saying that's true, but I am saying that's another way of squaring this with uh, Matthew twenty six twenty four.
0: Okay. So that is a, a lot of patron questions. And we have quite a number more that we uh, are, I just, we run out of time to answer this time, but have no fear. We are saving them and we will answer them in a future patron questions episode. So do not worry where if you've asked a question that hasn't been answered here today, we will get to it in the future. But Jimmy, do we have further resources for today's show that relate to the questions
1: you've answered? Yes, we do. First, we'll have a link to the great courses course on ancient Mesopotamia, the one that I've already listened to, so I know it's good, with the eerily (laughs) Marina Sirtis professor. Also, we'll have links to Robert Graysmith's book, Zodiac, and his follow-up book, Zodiac Unmasked. That was the actual title, not exposed, but unmasked. And then we'll have links to the Boeing X-37B, to Bob Breyer's Ancient Egypt course, which is excellent. I really highly recommend that one. Also, information on Adrenochrome, The Letter to King Abgar, Andrew Cross, and also information on Deja Vu and Electronic Voice Phenomena, as well as Sargon of Akkad, The Holy Fire, The Zodiac Killer, and The Ark of the Covenant.
0: Excellent. Very good. So, that's it from us. Thank you to all of our patrons, and especially those who submitted questions. You can submit feedback on this show by going to patreon.com slash starquest, or by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page and leaving feedback, or you can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys world with the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. You'll find links to all those resources from our discussion on our show notes at patreon.com StarQuest and eventually at sqpn.com Mysterious when we release the episode to the general audience. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to and supporting Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.